We're in a series in James. It's called Faith That Works. Let's take our Bibles out and go to James chapter 5. If you have a Bible or New Testament, it's way in the back of your Bible. You go to Revelation, just go back a couple, three or four books, and, and, uh, and you'll find it. James chapter 5, and this, I'm not even sure, what, what is this, like installment number 8 or so? Is it like out of 10? How many know? 9? How many of you have read through all 10 chapters of James? Next week I preach on honesty. There are not 10 chapters in James. And you're writing it down right now. Never raise your hand again when he asks a question. Uh, this has been a great series just for the summer. It's the Proverbs of the New Testament. And uh, what James gives to us is some really practical, meaty things, but, but hard stuff to swallow too. And this may be one of the hardest passages of the Bible to get. And it's hard to get into it because it's so, um, it, it has such a sting to it. So let's ask the Lord to help us as we read. So Lord, set our hearts apart now. Make us tender and receptive to what your word says um, we love to read the lofty, comforting parts, but Lord, we don't take comfort in reading the parts that sting us or twitch us. We don't like that, and we certainly don't like the ones that thump us. So Lord, may our hearts be receptive to your word now today. May we receive it with gladness and examine our own hearts, not for anybody else's value, but for our own, we pray. Uh, and I pray this so we would be different people when we leave here, somehow a little more transformed to look like Jesus and to follow him in faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was in 1923 that some of the most powerful wealthy financiers met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. They met there to strategize and collaborate together their personal fortunes. It was 1923, so most of us were not alive yet. But among those powerful movers and shakers in that last century, there was the president of the largest independent steel company in the world, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a member of the president's United States cabinet. There was one of the most successful traders in Wall Street. There was the head of the largest industrial monopoly. And there was the president of the Bank of the International Settlement. And to, according to one source that was, and I quote this source, collectively these men controlled more wealth than there was in the United States Treasury at the time. Can you imagine that amount of wealth? Newspapers and magazines have been printing their success stories for years, and they, they urged young people to follow in their steps. Why? Because money talks. Has it ever occurred to you that, that nobody ever sets up a great example and says, hey, you see that guy with that old beat-up car? Find out what his secret is to life. Does everybody ever do that? See that lady with the tattered clothing, looks a little worn out and haggard? Find out what makes her so happy. She's not. No one really does a TV series after those people. Well, except for Duck Dynasty. But anyway, you know, for the most part. Eight years after that historic conference in, uh, at the Edgewater Beach Hotel, in 1931, it was James Thruslow Adams who coined the phrase, 
the American dream. And that's what he referred to when he referred to that conference. These people were living the American dream, the pursuit of gaining status, and this is how he defined it, status and personal recognition. But when Jesus talked about money and possessions, he talked about money and possessions even more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. And out of the 38 parables of the New Testament, 16 of them talk about money and possessions. And some uh, records tell us the New Testament talks about money in one out of every 10 verses. Money usually creates an alliance, kind of a, uh, a different kind of mindset. Have you ever gone into a meeting and you know you're going to get sold, so you sit on the no on your face? Have you ever done this? No one's going to raise their hand because I asked a trick question earlier. But have you ever gone into a sales pitch and you just, no, I've got to say no, I've got to say no. It doesn't matter if you're in an appliance store and, you know, the guy needs to make the quota. It doesn't matter if it's sales in a car. It doesn't matter. You just know you've got to put on the game face. Why? Because money seems to talk. But the scriptures also seem to tell us there were a lot of rich people, godly rich people in the Bible. Job, Abraham, Abraham was really rich. Nicodemus, you don't think of Nicodemus as rich, but he was. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea already had his plot to bury, and it was a, it was a plot, it was a big piece. Barnabas had so much money that when he sold property, he could give the entire amount that he made off that property, he could give the entire amount to the church. That's loaded, Huh? I'd like to meet a few like that, wouldn't you? That's a lot of money. Philemon was rich. These people all had some financial worth, so the Bible isn't against financial worth. So what's the big deal? Proverbs chapter 10, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth without, pain, uh, without painful toil for it. But, it. but it does also warn us in Proverbs 11, those who trust their riches will fall. So it's okay to have the riches, but to trust them, to make them your God, or your affection, that's where we get in trouble. Those who trust the riches will fall. The righteous will thrive like a green leaf. James doesn't hold back on these attitudes about the stuff. And with all of our rich, and about this time you're saying to yourself, well, I don't know, I don't feel all that rich. Hang on. How many of you have you ever like, had like 10 bucks in your pocket and felt rich? Remember that day? Remember? And then you've had 100 bucks in your pocket and you feel poor? You've had that day too. I don't have it. I don't have enough. I never have enough. Yeah. All the resources of God's gifts are from above, and so we can use them for good. But, God, but what James is teaching us is that, is that people sometimes get rich at the hands of poor by inflicting pain on poor people. James says that's got to stop. In fact, if you're, if you're overreaching the riches, that's got to stop. Or if you trust riches, that has to stop. And when James writes that, he writes to Christians, but he writes about Christians, and then he writes about people who may not even be believers, but just have this get-rich-quick kind of scheme feel. By the way, you know the phrase, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. And so he tells us, the uncontrolled drive for wealth is unhealthy. And don't misunderstand, it's not wealth that's the problem, it's that drive, the desire for more, more, more. It's the lack of contentment, the lack of gratitude. That's the message we get from James, because in the context, this is what's hard to get, because we're jumping into chapter 5. 
James is writing to a group of people and he's writing within a community context where people are taking advantage of each other. Okay, and when they do that, James is now saying, you gotta stop that. James 5, verse one. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted, the moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. That's judgment, if ever there were one. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Verse four, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. He's saying he's not even bothering you, and yet you, you go out of your way to make his life miserable. Now, go back to the first verse. Now listen, you rich people. And some of you are going right now, oh, yeah, I'm off on this one because I'm not rich. Right? How you say, oh yeah, yeah. In fact, I am so poor. I'm, I'm really, really poor. Okay, hang on. Three-fourths of the, world pop, uh, of the world's population today lives on about $300 a year. Okay? So if you make more than $300 a year, you're rich. Okay? If you own a car, you're in the top 5% of the world's economy. And if you have a change of clothes, if you have money in the bank and food for the next meal, those three things, if you, if you could go home and make lunch, you're in the top 1% of the world's economy. Now, it's not about the wealth, and I'm not... You know, about this time, everybody's going, okay, I'll go home and turn the air conditioning up a couple degrees. You know, stop it with the guilt. Okay, no more guilt, because I don't want to turn mine warmer either. I like the comfort of my home. I like a television. I like cable, and I like phones. I don't like phones. How many of you hate phones? I used to like phones. I don't like phones. Beepers are worse than phones. Remember beepers? Those should be in the bottom of a river somewhere, should they not? Can I get an amen? Yes, amen. Yes. Just ask yourself, is this money, is this income, is this status, is this what I live for? Is, and because eventually I'm going to grow old and die, and then I'm going to hand it to my children who will then fight over it. Is that what we want? I don't think so. So look at the, I want to look real quickly at some attitudes that really drain life. The number one is hoarding. Verse three, your, your gold, silver corroded, they testify against you. It's just hoarding. You're just pounding it out. He's saying, this is actually a disorder. I hope you get this. Um, by the way, when, when James writes, he tells stories constantly, and he creates what are called word pictures, which are bigger stories, yet he does this in a huge way in these 12 verses. And, and so when he writes and says, your wealth is rotted, verse two, and he's saying, your money is so old in your pocket, it's actually going bad. You ever had money go bad in your pocket? I've never had that, ever. Well, because I have teenagers. That's probably why. Money just flows, usually out, you know? Yeah, people say money speaks. Yes, mine says goodbye. Yeah. Amen. Thank you for that. It wasn't a daughter of mine. I could tell by the voice. Yes. Remember the Beatles song, You Say Goodbye, But I Say Hello? I want that with my money. You say it, goodbye, but I want to say hello to money. Yeah. 
what we're finding is this. Go back, he says, you rich people, and then he says, verse 2, your wealth is rotted, moths have eaten your clothes. What kind of clothes get rotted? Clothes that aren't worn. You have too many. You say, well, I just need a bigger closet. Okay, <laughs> okay. how about two closets? And you can't wear them all. If you can't wear them all, they're going to rot. That's what happens. If you don't use the money, it rots. If you don't use it, it and this is actually we're finding it today as a disorder. Have you ever seen this, the hoarding shows on TV? I think I have problems, but when I do, I turn on TV and go, boy, I'm not nearly as bad as they are. You ever do that? Oh, man, she's disgusting. Yeah. If I could find the clicker in here somewhere, it's the remote. It's someplace. We've just lost it in our own hoarding mess. What we're finding today is that the hoarding leads to depression and anxiety. It creates a separation of people because people would rather have stuff than the relationships of people. And people who hoard tend to be, get this, they tend to be isolated. Stingy people are lonely people. So don't stockpile your money because it'll consume you. And that's not an anti-savings statement. It's just an anti-hoarding. You have to ask yourself, how much is enough? How much is enough? Um, once a year, we'll hear of a person who died in total poverty. And people, you know, they, they barely have enough money to get this person in the grave. And then later they find out the person's a multimillionaire. You ever, you ever read those stories? And you go, what were they thinking? They should have just used bits of the money all the way along. So what you accumulate, get this, what you accumulate deteriorates. So use what you have. Nothing wrong with having this stuff. Just use it. If you can't use it, bless somebody else with it. There's nothing wrong with planning ahead. But don't have your riches rot. Some people would rather have their riches rot than to bless someone else. And that's just sick. That's terribly wrong. Clothes that are moth-eaten, ones that are never worn, food that tastes bad, how many of you have opened the fridge and found mystery food in the back? Can I get a hand? Yes. Yeah. I once, I could tell you this because my wife's not in the service. You won't tell, will you? We'd been gone a few days. You know how it is vacation. Coming up, the kids were in the house. I came home, was hungry, put, opened the bread drawer, put my hand in, pulled out a piece of bread, or two pieces of bread to make a sandwich, threw it on the counter, and noticed a cloud. Whoa, I looked at my hand. It was all fuzzy. This is the problem when you buy organic. It goes bad. You know, I should have bought food with more preservatives in it, right? Yeah. Bread that doesn't ever expire. I pulled it out. It was bad, and I hadn't even looked at it. You know how you just do stuff without looking? I won't do that again. Yeah. It felt, it tasted funny, too. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Eat the food that you have. Nothing wrong with having food in the fridge. Eat the food that you have. If you find that food is always expiring, maybe that's an issue that you're collecting too much. I mean, you say, well, I just need a bigger barn, a bigger fridge. How much is enough? A bigger closet. How much is enough? You perhaps heard of the man who was a professional hoarder. He loved his money in particular. He liked his wife. He put up with his children, but he loved his money one day, the guy found out he was terminally ill, and he knew he only had months to live. And in his ailing days, he made his wife promise that when he died, that she would bury him with all of his money. She said, I thought you loved me. He said, I, I, I kind of do, but I really love my money, and I want to be buried with my money. How tragic. And so he, sure enough, he got sicker and sicker, and he insisted, bury me with my money. And she said, 
reluctantly, okay, what about me? What about the kids? He said, I want my money. The day came, he died. She uh, put together a service, bought a casket, uh, had the service. The neighbors couldn't believe it. She came to the service with uh, this safety deposit box, you know, like a military kind of an ammo box piece. And uh, she came to the service, sat in the front row, the minister did his thing, and just before the casket was closed, she walked up and placed the riches inside the casket. They closed the casket, wheeled it out, and the neighbor said, I can't believe, are you sure you want to do this? She said, it's his last request, I need to honor that. Tell me you didn't put all the money in there. She said, I absolutely did. He said, well, he was worth a lot. She said, you're not kidding. I had to write the check, and it was a big one. Not suggesting that, ladies, that you think about this in the future. But have you noticed that hearses rarely have U-Hauls behind them? Just think about that. Do you plan to take it with you? No, just hoarding. Uh, Verse 4 goes on to talk about deceit. These people are getting rich by not paying the workers. And if you're in charge of employees, take care of them. Just take care of them. Treat them the way they need to be treated. Deceitful money making happens when employers don't pay their debts. And it happens with undocumented workers all the time. People, they can't, they have no recourse because they're undocumented. So they work a day, expect to be paid a day. That was the way it was in in James's day. And it's that way in some places in the United States in greater degrees than others. But if the boss doesn't want to pay, then there's, you had absolutely no recourse. Wanda and I um, had the delight of dinner with some old friends uh, recently. And uh, they were coming through town, and we met them in town for dinner and had a lovely time. And they have a college daughter who was traveling with them. And um, she has grown up to be a, a, just a wonderful, thinking, smart, verbal uh, girl who loves the Lord. And I said, well, how's school? Great. Um, you have a job? She said, yeah, I, actually, I deliver pizzas. You do? She said, yeah, I love it. It works well with my school schedule. I deliver pizzas, and I really enjoy it. I said, how's that going? She said, pretty good, but she said, I'm learning a lot about people. I said, oh, here we go. I said, tell me. And she told me about a rich section of town. She said, the traffic's bad, and it's um, this section of town. And she said, inevitably, they order four pizzas, and they hardly tip at all. It's the rich section of town. She said, I would rather say I get better tips from middle America, from average and lower to lower middle America. She said, I get better tips from them. She said, they seem to just value my work more. Isn't that interesting? People get rich, but that doesn't mean necessarily they're going to become generous. And that's just stealing in some ways. And they don't owe her a thing. But to think that they could be generous and encourage a college student. So the other night we were ordering pizza again. Wanda says, what's the tip going to be? I said, okay, I'll put a couple more. You know how this goes. Sure, just pass the money around. It'll come around. Lord knows I would never want it to rot in my pocket. (laughs) Don't you hate listening to your own sermons? I hate this. Thirdly, that was wasting. James speaks of this whole empire of extravagant lifestyle. He says, you, you waste this. It's, it's going away on you. It's not enough that you spend on yourselves. 
and have larger closets and more cabinets and we're, we're stuffing stuff away and and it happens, it happens in your kitchen, isn't it? You go, I got this new coffee maker. We have no place to put it. You know, because you have so many appliances. In, in James's day, what was happening was they, they would make money and they would, they would waste it on great parties and then the people that served them, they would hardly pay and they would hardly make it get by in life. I'm reminded of Tony Campolo's book is entitled Who Changed the Price Tags. In the book, he tells the story of a young boy who's a fisherman off the coast of Argentina. He fishes from the time the sun comes up till it goes down. And all the fish he catches with his dad gets shipped to the United States. And all that fish gets processed into cat food. Not a problem. Here's the problem. That dad and son get paid so little that that son is malnourished. He does not get the vitamin nutrition that the fish he catches would provide for him. He will die an early death because he doesn't get the nutrition that he needs, and the nutrition that he needs is at his feet in the boat. He can't even eat the fish that he catches. Something's wrong. The price tags are obviously gone crazy. That is excessive waste and it's not anti-cat or anti-dog or anti-pet. But you think about what you feed your pets and what I feed our pets and the rest of the world, that would be enough to live on. Think of it in those terms. Stop the wasting. And then stop the abusing, verse 6. <clears throat> the issue of influence is really this money thing. It, it becomes powerful. Richard Foster in his book, Money, Sex, and Power, writes that this money has the power of incredible influence. Scholars call this judicial murder. And what they mean by that is this. A guy doesn't get paid, and so he, he takes his employer to court, but his employer is so rich, he can go to the judge and pay the judge to get the verdict he wants. And so then this poor guy not only loses the case, but then has to pay for all the court costs. So then he not only loses the money he didn't get, now he's losing more income it's judicial murder is what's called in court. And they do it because they can buy their way. And they abuse the privilege. And you know what? That's not the life God rewards. That's not the good life. That's not the great life. And we're above that. Okay? Proverbs 11. One person gives freely yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Proverbs 11.25, whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Have you ever given a tip and felt good about it? Have you ever done that before? Like, I'm just going to do that, you know? I stayed in a booth a little longer and decided, let's up that a little bit. In fact, here's the policy. I can tell you this because Wanda comes to 11. It's like, I mean, you get a whole lot more information than 11 does. But if I, like, uh, joke with the waitress or do something stupid, which I, rarely happens, <laughs> but occasionally you know what she says that's five percent more you gotta raise the tip again so you know she moves from 15 to 20 to 25 to 30 i gotta be quiet because i'm paying almost a hundred percent tip now <laughs> if i keep dinking around you're laughing i'm not whoever refreshes others leave a tip that would just you'd be pleased of leave a tip that you, you'd say yeah i'd want that for my son my daughter do not store up for yourselves, Matthew chapter 6, the words of Jesus, treasures here on earth, 
where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break through and steal. Stored up in, in heaven, paid ahead. John D. Rockefeller was asked once, how much is enough? You know what his response was? Just another dollar or more. Is that issue of never being content. The psalmist David wrote it, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. Don't set your heart on them. By the way, those guys in that hotel in 1923, all of their lives ended tragically. All of them. The president of the largest independent steel company lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life. He died penniless. The president of the New York Stock Exchange was caught stealing and ended up in federal prison. The member of the president's cabinet was pardoned from prison so he could die at home. The most successful trader in the Wall Street took his own life. As did the head of the world's largest industrial monopoly, as did the president of the Bank of International Settlement. So if a piece of paper could speak, it would tell you, don't trust me, don't love me. Use me. Be happy when you have some money in your pocket. But don't trust me. Don't love me. Don't think that this is the end and all. The paper doesn't talk. The men whose pictures are on the paper, Lincoln, right, Grant, right? I have a lot of Washingtons, not as many Grants. You'll get that later. Those guys are all dead. That money means nothing to them. Having the paper will not, by the way, having that paper will not make you more generous. You know, we always say, well, when I get richer, I'll be, I'll be a different person. No, when you get richer, you'll just be great, bigger at what you are now. You'll be more of that. But the, conversely, poverty doesn't make you more spiritual either. It may make you jealous, but it may not make you more spiritual. Having the paper does not give you security now or later. So what does? What is the life that God blesses? Verse 7. You ready? Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits in the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard Job's perseverance, and you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, brothers, verse 12 and sis, and verse 12, above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. What are the actions that are life-giving? Circle them in the text. Write them off to the side if you like. Just wait with your eyes on the Lord. Be patient. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is near. It's coming. The Lord's going to even the score here, verse 7. That's not all. Be patient and, and, and wait upon the Lord while doing the right thing. See how the farmer waits. And he paints another picture, tells another story. And I'm sure when James writes this, these guys are reading this, and they can see a farm field off to the side. They rest in the reality that God is in control, and rewarding the, the rewarding life is the life that lets God even the score. I don't have to even it, because I know he's coming, he'll even it, and so I can wait upon the Lord, and keep my eyes upon him. Secondly, I can wait doing the right thing, just like the farmer does, he sows the seed, he does the right thing, he waits for the rains, 
He relies upon the Lord for those rains. Those rains are rains he could never provide in and of his own strength. So it is with us. We plant the seeds of good things in, in life without any guarantee that we can control all the elements. We cannot. We just keep sowing the right seed, doing the right thing. So wait while doing the right thing. Thirdly, we wait with a spirit of optimism. You too, he says, you be patient, stand firm. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. He, he, he seems to be repeating this. You have to remember, you know, all, all the wickedness of those business people, don't worry about them. Why? The Lord will even that score. The Lord will even that score. He repeats it. We need to hear it again and again. Hang in there and stand firm with a spirit of optimism because the Lord will ultimately reconcile all the injustice of the system. The Lord will handle this. So we can wait without playing on emotion. We don't have to grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. He says, you don't have to, you don't have to like, okay, I'm going to wait, but I'm going to whine about it while I'm waiting. You don't have to do that. We can wait and do so cheerfully. And then we can wait without playing on emotion. We can wait without a mind game. Have you ever done this? You say, well, I'll wait upon the Lord. I wonder if he's going to do it this way. I wonder if he'll do it that way. And if it were me, I would do it this way. And again, that's why the Lord doesn't consult us. Because we're so double, triple, quadraphonic minded. See? Anyone here can overthink that. And, and so that's why James just says, don't overthink it. Just let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Say it, mean it, and then set your life to be that way. So here's my word to you this week. As you trust in the Lord and his mighty power, and you embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. And if you don't know Christ uh, as, as Savior, if you don't know what it means to have a personal relationship with him, I, I'll be off to the side of the prayer corner. I'd be happy just to give you material or pray with you. People in the lobby at the kiosk can do that as well. They can just give you material. But here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Take stock in your life. Stuff that you don't use, find a way to bless somebody with it. Okay? Just detox the the consumerism, the materialism, the, the stuff. Get rid of it. Because uh, you, you ever found yourself, you're managing all this stuff? That's what you end up doing. Give it away and give away something that you're done using but still has use and then, and then learn contentment but learn also generosity in that. And then wait upon the Lord. This is the theme of verses 7 to 12. Just patiently wait and let him call the shots on on what you would know to be your desires in life. And when tempted to take control, wait again. Why? Because that's the life that God blesses. And ultimately, he will, he will even the score. And when he comes, you want to be found faithful and waiting patiently, joyfully, optimistically, doing the right thing for his glory. Amen? Amen. All right, let's bow for prayer and let's stand as we pray. Would you stand with me? This is a message um, for people who have already embraced Christ in, in faith. And so if you're not there yet, let me tell you this. Uh, this is a tough message to hear, I'm sure. Because it's so much insider information about learning contentment. And, and quite frankly, the message you need to hear is this. That God loves you with an everlasting love. Jesus loves you so much that he came to be your savior. And if you'll embrace him in faith, he promises to save you change your life, come in and take over, if you'll allow that. 
So I encourage you, if you've never trusted the Lord to do that today. But for, for many of us in the room, we've trusted the Lord, but trusting him with our finances has been another issue. So Lord, together we pray. You'd keep us from playing the games society wants to play by hoarding or, or, or overstepping our power with money and uh, being deceitful and, and somehow wasting it and, and, and just ruining the opportunities that, that could be ours with the resources you give to us. Instead, may we be known as being generous, gracious people who wait on a holy God who we know to be just in all of his ways. So may you instill in us not only a spirit of generosity, but also a spirit of justice that we know ultimately you will even the score. And we wait patiently for you. May we be people who are becoming more and more holy like Christ as we follow him. And we pray this in the strong name of our resurrected Savior, Jesus. The church says, amen. 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 God bless you.